You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. If you could go ahead and pull out your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, there's a few Bibles somewhere close to you, uh, under someone's seat around you, and so you have to awkwardly try to get that from underneath them. Uh, but we're a family, and so you could do that. If it's real awkward, just ask, you know, tap them on the shoulder. And we're in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Uh, and if you are having a, a Bible that we provide, um, it's on page 267. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you're welcome to take that Bible with you. Um, and uh, if one day you buy a Bible, you can bring that back if you want to, or you can keep it or give it to someone else. Um, we, uh, that'd be our gift to you. Um, we are in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, and we're here, uh, we're looking at the story of Naaman to see a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament to show that God has always approached us in the same way. It's always been one story that sinful man is in desperate need of a gracious God. And so God, knowing that we can never earn it, we can never achieve it, we can never earn it, knows that he has to send a rescuer, and that rescuer is going to be Jesus. And in Revelations, we see this picture, from the creation of the world, the Lamb was slain. And so I don't know how that works out, but from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, they knew that creation would cost the blood of the Lamb, and so Jesus was on board, and so it was like it had already happened from the beginning of time. And so it's always been about a gracious God pursuing sinful man's heart. And we pick 2 Kings chapter 5, not just because it's an incredible picture of the Old Testament, of not just an Old Testament Jew seeing the grace of God, but an enemy of God's people, not only an enemy from God, but an enemy of God's people coming and seeing this great salvation that this unique God of the Scriptures offers. And we're doing it because if you have a kid up to the age of 5th grade, and they're either in Camp Stonegate, 1st through 5th grade, or Little Camp Stonegate, uh, birth through 5, they are doing the same story. And so if you don't know me, uh, my name is Casey, and I'm a, one of the ministers here. I'm a church planning resident, and I work with your 1st through 5th graders on Sunday mornings, which if they're developing any strange habits after today, if you never hear me preach, you might see some of that come out. Um, but we're doing the same story to show you a little bit of what they see and to shame you if you are one of those dirtbags who are not in Camp Stonegate getting what we put out. And so if you have your iPhone, go ahead and bring that up. Get on there right now so you don't have to rest And I'm a dirtbag. Um, but we do this. And see, we want to do it because depending if you have a boy or girl in, in Camp Stonegate, you may think we're great, or you may think, I don't know what they're doing in there. And so this is our experience. You walk in, and on the right side of the room, the girls are there, and they smell good. They read much better. They have their craft in front of them, and they build a beautiful craft. And when they leave, they take their beautiful craft, and they have their take-home sheets, and they can articulate what they go. But if you have a boy, you drop him off, there's a low level of chaos, and they are lucky to get out with their life, you know. And so uh, we've got a student in here. Uh, he'll, he'll remain nameless. His name's Logan. But every time he leaves, he, uh, his dad will ask him, so what would you learn? He says, um, we learned about Jesus. What did you learn about Jesus? He's good. And uh, in his defense, that's right. It's true. And so you'll see that we're going to learn about Jesus and that Jesus is good. But we're going to ask this question. How salvation happens in your life? And when we say salvation in your life, we want you to have two pictures. We want you to have justification salvation. How justification happens in your life. And we also want you to have present day salvation from sin and death and Satan's schemes. And did we, I mean, that song we just ended with, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me, from life's first cry to life's final breath, he commands my destiny. What if, what if we really believe that? 
How might you live if you really believe that? That in this life, when I don't achieve, and when I fail my God, and I fail my family, and I fail my friends, that there is no guilt in this life because it has been paid upon the cross, and I am blessed because Jesus has made me blessed, and so I aspire to live for what he's calling me already. No guilt in life. No fear in death. And this has been the constant answer of the gospel all through scripture and so we pick it up in second kings chapter five but right before we do that when we answer this question how salvation happens there's going to be two main things that we see that how it happens it happens because we see that self-sufficiency is a lie and then there is a shift in how we cry out to god and how we think about god and so salvation happens on the justification level for those same two reasons we see that our, self, our self-sufficiency is a lie. And there's a shift in the way I cry to God and the way I think about God. And Tim Keller, when he's talking about this passage in Counterfeit Gods, he responds to this story like this. He says, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all that I've done. Or maybe, look at all that I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him, and he says, just wash. And so picking up right here, in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, we first meet a man, his name is Naaman. And so this is what it says about Naaman. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl of the land of Israel. And the king of, of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought a letter to the king which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing that we want to notice, and this is just a flat level thing, this is just what we read here, is that Naaman was a successful man. Naaman was successful. Look at how it describes him. In verse 1, it says, Naaman, commander of the army, the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. That's not even the full sentence. And we see these things come off the page that we would want all the people to describe us. I mean, he was a commander. He was a great man. He was highly esteemed. By him, you got victory. And he was known as a brave and courageous man, a man of valor. And so if we're going to break this apart, we're going to see three things about Naaman. And I'm contending to you and to me that these are three things that we believe if we have, we are safe. And so the first thing is Naaman had the right relationships. And so look back in verse 5. When we say Naaman had the right relationships, look at this letter of recommendation he gets. It says, and the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, in, in the ancient world, this is a little bit of a, a letter of recommendation that goes with you. So you say, I am a connected person, so you should take me serious. And we still use letters of recommendation. And if you have the right person backing you with a letter of recommendation, it opens up doors, right? I mean, imagine, if you will, that you weren't applying to some state school, but you were applying to Harvard. 
And so you go to Harvard and you have test schools that are going to get you into state school. I went to state school, I can say it. Or maybe test scores that are going to get you into JUCO. Or maybe you were an athlete so you didn't need test scores. I don't know how it works out. And so you have test scores that are not going to get you in. But you sit down in front of the admissions office at Harvard and you sit there and they open up your resume and they open up your transcript and you can see that the admission officer is kind of smirking as they look at your score. And they kind of awkwardly look at you and say, son, I I don't know how to tell you this, but these are not the scores that get you into Harvard. And you reach over and you turn the transcript to the next page and they sit there and they see a recommendation from President Drew Gilpin Foss. Now I had to look that up because she is the president of Harvard. I didn't know that. I mean, could you imagine that moment? In that moment, I don't think your test scores are going to, welcome to Harvard, you know? And so we see connections, and we see relationships, and in this world, they open up a lot of things. And I'm contending to you that this letter of recommendation was going to open up everything it could open to the king of Israel. You see, if you have your Bible, if you want to back up to 1 Kings chapter 20, and you don't have to, I'll just read it, but 1 Kings chapter 20 you're welcome to. I want to describe the relationship that Syria and Israel had at this time. And so this is in their past. In, in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1, it says, King Ben-Hadid of Syria called his army together. He was joined by 32 other kings. That's not like Fellowship of the Ring, five other kings. 32 other kings. 32 other kings with their horses and chariots and together they marched to Samaria and attacked. Ben-Hadid sent a messenger to King Ahab of Israel. And so the relationship, king of Syria, king of Israel. Listen to what the letter says. Ahab, give me your silver and gold, your wives and your strongest sons. I mean, what, how would you like to get that? I mean, for the moment, this is the one time that you are, you, if you're a son, you are glad that you're picked last for dodgeball. I ain't going there. Give me your strongest sons. And so look at this. It goes on. And so we see this diplomatic response from the king of Israel. He says, your majesty, Ahab replied, everything I have is yours, including me. And so he basically says, hey, you don't have to take it. It's yours. Just leave it here. This is how the letter comes again. Later, Ben-Hadid sent another messenger to Ahab. Ahab, I already told you to give me all of your silver, all of your gold, all of your wives, and now give me your children, but tomorrow at this time I will send my officials to your city to search your palace and your houses and your officials. They will take everything else that you own. I mean, could we say that's an, you know, an adversarial relationship maybe? And so all of a sudden, this history is what's been following. And all of a sudden, the king of Syria sends a letter with a guy that says, heal his leprosy. That's something the king of Israel is going to take note of. And so it's the right relationship. And and, and don't you think, I mean, just for a moment, step away from Naaman, step away from, you know, several thousand years ago. Don't we still believe that the right relationships, the right connections are going to keep us safe and secure? Naaman had relationships. The second thing we see, Naaman had power and fame over others. Look at verse 1. And so we can kind of categorize these in two things. First, Naaman had power. He was the commander of the Syrian army. Now, I was never in the military. My grandpa was in the military, and his grandpa's grandpa was in the military. My dad was in the military. And it's funny, when they talk of stories and they talk of basic training, they're all going to talk about marching around. Now, the interesting thing about marching is marching does not help you win battles. I mean, you don't actually still march onto a battle line. I mean, if you just all lined up and marched onto a battle line, the enemy would mow you down. It would not be advantageous for you to win a war. You don't march into battle. But all the military branches have you march because it produces instant obedience in you. They say left, you turn left. They say stop, you stop. They say go, you go. And if you're the commander, that's the kind of command, that's the kind of power that you have over people. And so he had power. It goes on, but he also had power and reputation. It says by him, the Lord had given victory. His reputation was known as someone to be powerful. I mean, wouldn't you rather be known as someone who's powerful than someone who's the chump? 
I mean, he had a reputation, but it's not just power, it's also fame. Look at how they describe his character. He was a man of, he was a great man, he was high in favor, and he was a mighty man of valor. And so really, we don't want to be hard on Naaman. Naaman was an upstanding guy. Naaman was a good guy. And so he has this reputation. He has power and fame, and he walks with that. He has the right connections, the right friends. And he walks in such a way that he thinks, these things can surely help me, surely secure my life. Listen to how Tim Keller describes uh, personal success and achievement in this quote. He says, more than other idols... Personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God. That our security and value rest in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. To be, very be to be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means no one is like you. You are supreme. And so just on the flat level, when we look at the story, Naaman comes to Israel and he is someone who's well-connected. He is someone who has a reputation of power and fame. And he is someone who has money. Naaman had money. Look at this description in verse 5. It says, So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And so this is almost like a procession that goes before him where he, he opens up all the riches that he brings so that people know that he's a serious deal. And the interesting thing, when you read commentaries, they want to describe to you how much money this is. And it's differing amounts of how much it is in today's currency, probably depending on when it was written, depending on how old the commentary is. But they all say the same thing very, very carefully. This is a boatload of money. He had a lot of money. And everyone knows, I mean, you come to sermons and you hear stuff preached and things like this, say your money ultimately can't save you, you can't buy your salvation. And all of that is true and we are going to hit that. But we might believe it's not going to get me to heaven and I can't take it with me because I've never seen the hearse carrying the U-Haul. We might have all the cliche things of that and we might say that, but on a functional daily salvation, on a functional thing that I look to hold me in security, money is a powerful thing. Is it not? Money and possessions. Have you ever had a horrible day? I mean, just nothing worked out. And so instead of going home, you swing by the mall and you buy some outfit and you can't afford that outfit, but it looks just right. It's slimming, so it's black. And you go to the place where, I'm kind of talking from a girl's perspective mostly, you go to the place where the mirrors are probably more skinny mirrors and astral mirrors and you buy this outfit and you wear it out because you can't wait. Doesn't it make you feel like you've got a little bit better edge on life? Doesn't it numb something in you? Or maybe, maybe it's not clothes. Maybe, maybe it's electronics. Are you one of those geeky guys that just geek out with electronics? And you've already sold your firstborn son to the iPhone company, you know, the Apple for iPhone 12 when it comes out. And as soon as you get it, it does everything but let you talk to another human. And you have it in your pocket and you're around a group of people and you say, man, I want them to know that I am legit here. And so you fake a little text like, oh, someone's trying to contact me. Wow, look at that. Oh, let me talk to it. You know, and so you pull it out because there's a sense. If they see what I have or if they see what I drive or if they see how I roll, they're going to think I'm okay. And if they think I'm okay, maybe I'll think I'm okay. Or maybe you're like me and you love. There is something intoxicating about a brand new white pair of tennis shoes. I mean, when you buy a brand new bright white pair of tennis shoes that your wife will mock you for because she says they look like geriatric shoes, but you love them. There is something about the new, the new sole of that shoe where you feel like you are actually walking on the clouds of heaven and you feel a little bit better about life. There is something that happens when you have enough money or when you have the right possessions that you feel a little bit better. But when we look at this list of what Naaman has, and we've just been flat. Naaman had connections. Naaman had power and fame. 
Naaman had money. When you look at that list, we'd want to just take a moment and we'd want to identify which one of those lies of self-sufficiency makes you feel the safest. I mean, is it that you have money in your pocket so you're going to be okay? Or is it because you have money in your pocket so people take you serious? Or is it because that you have the right connections and you can open up doors and people respect you? Or is it because of the opinions of others that they look at you like the power and fame? They see someone who is an able body. They see someone who's worth their weight. They see someone that they want on their team. And so when I read this and I connect to this, man, number two gets really loud in my life. That there is this fear and approval of man in my life that I want people to look at how I teach or I want people to look at how I conduct my life or I want people to look at me in such a way and they say, he's okay. Because if I get enough people around me to say he's okay, maybe I'll feel like I'm okay. And so we joke about it that it's the beauty contest. That sometimes I'm like, man, just tell me I'm pretty. I just need to hear that I'm okay. Just tell me I'm pretty. But it's always been present in my life as long as I can remember. You know, if you would have known me in college and you came to my, my room, you probably would have found at any given time, and depending on who's coming over, it might be laid out in my, my, my yearbook for my senior year. You know, and so when I'm dating Kinsey, I kind of bait the yearbook out there, kind of leave it out. And of course, you're going to want to look at a yearbook. It's like, oh, well, look at here. And I have kind of worn pages, so it kind of naturally opens there. The binding's broken just a little bit. So she opens it up, and it falls to the student council page. I'm like, she's like, I didn't know you were president of student council. I'm like, well, some of you didn't notice that. Voted by my peers. She turns a page, and it's, it's homecoming king. I was like, also voted by my peers. Um, homecoming king, I mean, no big deal. It's no big deal. And then it goes on. It's like all of a sudden you get to the senior accolades. You know, who's the prettiest, most athletic? Keep going down. Voted most likely to succeed. It's me. And all I'm trying to tell her is I am worthy of procreation. We should have children. <laughs> Voted by my peers. I'm okay. Enough people said I'm pretty, so I've got to be pretty, right? It is unable to save us. And isn't it interesting that the Bible's going to speak to all these things and it's going to say the same word, whether it's money or relationships or esteem. It's going to say it would be a fool to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Because self-sufficiency is a lie. And some of us are living in self-sufficiency right now that the world is opening itself up to us and things are okay. And there's a numbing reality that self-sufficiency, I'm going to be okay because of what my hands have created. I'm going to be okay because my life is secure. But just like Naaman, there's always a but. Look at this. When we look back at this, there's always a but. And so the second thing that we want to see under this, it says Naaman was successful, but... Naaman was successful, but look at this. So we go back and we read, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, in high favor, because by him he was given victory to Syria, a mighty man of valor, but Naaman was a leper. And no matter how secure your world gets, no matter how much you achieve, self-sufficiency is a seductive lie because there is always a but. Because nothing that our hands can create, nothing that our hands can manipulate, nothing that can come out of the brain of man is strong enough to save you the day that but comes. Nothing. And so just so that we might relate, when it says leper, I mean, that's kind of distant for us. I mean, it doesn't say head cold or high fever. It says leper. And so no matter how rich Naaman was in Syria, no matter how regarded he was, no matter how much people loved him and thought great things of him, there was a day coming that his leprosy would be noticeable to the point that he would have to cross the other side of the street to walk by. There's a day coming for him that his skin will become so numb that parts of his body will be worn off. There's a day coming when his loved ones will no longer embrace him. And it doesn't matter how much power, fame, it doesn't matter how much money or connections you have in that day, that but is coming. And it's so distant from us. I mean, the only, the only time I can somewhat relate to this was I, I was in college and this was in no way life-threatening, but I felt like a leper. 
it was like my junior year in college. It was during finals week. And all of a sudden, my body exploded in some sort of weird rash. And it looked like ringworm. And I've had ringworm before. And so I go to the pharmacist at Walmart because I don't have any money. And so I go up to her and I just ask, hey, what's the most powerful you know, over-the-counter ringworm thing you've got. And she looks at me, and she says, well, let me see what you got. And so I lift up my shirt, and her response was like, oh, okay. And she hands me a box, and this is what she says. If this doesn't noticeably help you in 24 hours, you need to find a doctor, which didn't build a lot of confidence in me. And so I go back, and I mean, it's this little bottle. It's not meant for explosion. I mean, it looked like I bathed in ringworm juice or something. And so it's this little bottle. And so I have this little bottle of topical ointment, and I'm, like, putting it on my ringworms, like, you know. I mean, I mean, it was a tiring process. And so I'm putting it everywhere. But in my fraternity, we had community showers, right or wrong. We had them. You grow to like them. You talk to someone while you take a shower. And so we had them. I would be in the shower. Guys would come in, put their towel up, you know, have their flip-flops because they don't want the disease that's on the floor. They'd look up and see me, and they would just back on out. And so for him, a day was coming that everyone would know that he was unlovable. And none of the accolades, none of the power, none of the money would stand against that thought. And so all self-sufficiency always has a but coming. And his but was that he had leprosy. But these things can come from the outside or they can come from the inside. So the first thing, the butt can come from the outside. I mean, think about all the connections and relationships and power and prestige that you might have. But they are impotent when death enters your family. They are impotent when financial ruin comes. I mean, you can invest wisely, you can invest a house, but the stock market will crash or the tornado will come. My sister, they have a family of five, and they currently have another family of five living with them because the tornado came. Right now, they are in a battle over their car because their car is gone. And so they called the insurance company and said, hey, the tornado took our car. And they said, we're going to need to see the car. And she's like, did you not hear what I just said? The tornado took our car. And like, well, we're going to need to see some evidence of the car. It's not like a bad valet service. I mean, I can't take out my little, whoosh it, whoosh it. I can't find my car. I mean, and so they're in this battle. But that day is coming. And so it can come from the outside or it can come from the outside like abandonment. Do you know that people leave people? And at that point, no amount of relationships, no amount of connections, no amount of money or power can do a thing about it. Or, or even worse, it can come from the inside. You see, the Bible teaches us that what we feel is true, and we all feel this, we have a deep sense that something inside of me is wrong. Something inside of me is ugly, so it leads me to date a certain way so they don't see it. It leads me to tell stories a certain way, to lean the truth in such a way that people think I'm lovable. It leads me to hide sins because I think if they know that about me, they will never love me because I wouldn't love me if I knew that about someone else. And so we know there's something ugly in us, and it can look like this. Maybe it's anxiety. That you have fear all the time of what might happen or could have happened. It is crippling and you don't let anyone know it, but it is ever present like the slow roar that is underlying everything if you live close to a waterfall. And so it deafens out things. So maybe it's anxiety and fear or maybe it's bitterness and hate. You have been unwilling to forgive. Sins have been done to you. The sinner that sinned against you lives in more freedom because they have moved on. But you can't forgive and bitterness is growing. It is inside of you. Or maybe it's just an outrageous arrogance that you can't take criticism because it is an attack on your very worth. You can't hear that you did things wrong. And so people isolate you because there's something broken in you. Or maybe it's like what Naaman had. Maybe it's disease. And the moment that disease is raging in your body and like an invading army is pushing back the defenses, 
and no amount of medicine and no amount of self-help and no amount of optimistic thinking and no amount of diet, whether you have wheat in your diet or you don't have wheat in your diet or whether you know what gluten stands for or you don't know what gluten stands for or whether you're trying to kill your arteries like Atkins, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It can't stand because inside of you it rages up. It's in those moments that God is close. Because you are about to see it's true, that your self-sufficiency, it's not that it is now impotent, it has always been impotent. Your self-sufficiency is about to end. But we don't, we don't learn that lesson easy. And the good thing is we see in Naaman, he didn't learn that lesson easy. Look at this. So look in verse 5 and 6. And so we started off in verse 1, and it described who Naaman was, and he had all these things. He had connections and relationships. He had power and fame. He had money. And those things were unable to save him in Syria. But look what he does. When he finds out that there is a miracle worker in Israel, he takes all those same things with him. And so look, in in chapter 5, it says, The king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter. He takes his recommendations. He takes his connections with him. So he went taking with him 10,000 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king, which read, With this letter reaches you. Know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And so all the things that didn't work in Syria, he said, if I only go somewhere else, surely they'll work there. Now just for a moment, before we roll our eyes and we say, man, how silly is Naaman? Let me ask you this. At your job, when all of a sudden all the chips are on the table and all blame is pointing to you and it's getting awkward, do you not think, man, if I just had a new start, a new job, I'd be okay? And so we take all the same things from this job to a new job. Or, or maybe it's a school, and you have messed up at that school, and you feel like, man, they are not giving me the benefit of the doubt anymore. So if I go to a new school, I'll be okay. Or maybe it's a home group, and some sort of cruddy valley happened in your home group or a former church, and you think, if I just have a new start, I'll be okay. And so we go to a new place with all the same things, and we try them, and they fail there also. For some of us, maybe it's a new wife. And we try the same things, and they fail there because they are illusions of self-sufficiency. And so he goes to Israel, and this shows us that it's not a new place that's a problem. We are never self-sufficient. And so the first thing, if we want to hear this as loud as I can say it, self-sufficiency is a seductive lie. It's never been true. You are not self-sufficient to save. And so now let's look at the other things. And so starting in verse 7. We read this, the other passage, it says, And when the king of Israel read the letters, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man would, um, that, that this man would send word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the kingdom of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord with his hand and wave his hand over the place to cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and been clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God. He and all of his company, they came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I now know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And so what we want to see at the beginning of this is we want to ask the question, why did the king of Israel tear his clothes? And the king of Israel tore his clothes because all of a sudden it became very apparent 
that Naaman was coming to him in a way that he could have gone to any other nation, but he was coming to him who was Israel, who's chasing after the true God, and he was asking him to do something that he can't do. The king of Israel would say, there are a lot of things that I could do for you, but I am not God. I am not in the place of God. I cannot heal man. I can't even tell my prophets what to do. You see, all other nations, all other religions are much more based in the idea of a national identity. And so he could have gone to any other nation, and what he did would have been appropriate to go to the king, because the king is the employer of all the priests and all the prophets, and they want to do things to make him happy. But he's sitting there saying, I can't tell the prophets what to do. They don't listen to me. And much less will my God listen to me. And so he tore his clothes and says, you have asked me to do something that I can't do. You have asked me to do something that I simply cannot do. And our culture is the same way. In all the universities, when they come to religion, they're going to treat it like it is a, a, a culturally driven thing. And they're going to present it that if you were born in India, you would be Hindu. And it is an extension of that culture and nothing more to control the people so they have unity. They're going to say if you were born in China, you would be Buddhist. And it is an extension of that culture to control the people so that there might be unity and common direction. They would say, and you come to America... And you're going to be Jewish or Christian or secular because it's an extension of our culture. And we stand in the same way as proclamations, as people who proclamate the gospel. And we say, it is nothing like that. We can't tell our God what to do. And so it starts to unfold. And so it, it shows us this, that there's a realization that's happening. And what we're going to see is salvation comes after two shifts in your life. And so the first shift is there has to be a change in the way that you cry out. And so the first thing, if you're taking notes, your cry must shift from help me out of my suffering to forgive me of my sin. And so the shift has to come from help me from my suffering to forgive me of my sin. Look at verse 8. And so in verse 8 it says, uh, Elisha writes back, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. He said prophet. He didn't say healer. He said prophet. He said, let him know that there is a prophet in Israel. If it was just about healing his skin, he would have said, let them know that there's a miracle worker. But see, a prophet is someone who might do healing or might not. A prophet's goal is to proclaim truth. And so he is looking at Naaman and he's saying, you have a truth problem. You don't have a skin problem. And so it comes to him and he says, the prophet is here. And so isn't this what we see all throughout scriptures? I mean, think about Luke chapter 5. And you, if you remember the story, Luke chapter 5, there's a paralyzed man and he is loved by his friends, so he has connections there too. And his friends, they pick him up on a mat because they hear that there is a healer. And so people looked at Jesus and they said, he is here to heal me. And so they take the man and the crowd is too dense and too thick. And so they push their way through, but they can't get to the house where he is. So they climb up on the roof and they start tearing apart the roof. And they lower the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. And Jesus stops because a man was just lowered from the ceiling after they tore apart the ceiling. And he looks at the man and he sees his condition and he says what? My son, your sins are forgiven. And all the people there said, well, that's not his problem. All the friends who brought him, that's not his problem. We just tore a man's roof up because he couldn't walk in. He's got to walk. The man here is, that's not my problem. I, I need to walk again. And Jesus was pointing and he took a moment to say, listen, you may be paralyzed in your legs, but the paralysis in your soul is your much bigger issue. And then he turns to him and says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. And the man walks away. You see what Jesus did in the interaction? It's the same thing that Elisha is doing. He's saying, I don't want you to think here that I'm just heal, here to heal your hurts and your pains. I'm here to heal, 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 it's hard to say. I'm here to heal your soul. Your biggest problem is your soul is paralyzed when it comes to God. And so we see that play out, and we see that that's the thing. And so Naaman's real problem 
was his self-righteousness and that he believed that he was self-sufficient and that made him okay and that his self-sufficiency could help, but his leprosy came. And that means for us, in the middle of the day or in the middle of the night when you wake up and you start thinking about the difficulties in your life, it means that when you cry out about those things, it doesn't mean don't cry out about those things. It means that you've got to take the emphasis off your suffering and you've got to put the emphasis on your sin. You have offended a holy God. And so this shift happens. Your cry must shift from help me out of my suffering to forgive me of my sin. But then there's another shift that happens. Your thinking must shift from how can I earn God's blessing with performance, record, talent, hard work, good deeds, whatever. How can I, it has to shift from how can I earn God's blessing to how can I rest in God's grace. Now let's just walk through the second half of the story. The first thing, look, look at verse 9 and 10. This is what Naaman learned. Naaman learned that God's favor is not reserved for the important people, the morally pure, or the devoted people. He said there is no reservation that puts it for you. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says, so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood in the door of Elisha's house. He brought all the, the, the parade with him. He would have brought all the money with him. Just like he tried to do that in Syria, then he tried to do it with the king of Israel. He brought that to the prophet too. And so there were chariots and horses that went before him. And he stood in front of Elisha's house. Look what Elisha does. And Elisha sent out a messenger to him. It is not reserved for people who have their life well put together. Salvation is not reserved because of your merit. It's not there for the good people. It's not there for the moral people. It's not there for the brave people. It's not there for the socioeconomic people. It's not there for those who recycle. Praise God, I don't recycle. It's not there for those kind of people. It's there for everyone who knows they have needs. And, and so look at this. Elisha wanted Naaman to see that he was not going to be healed because of the kind of man he was. He wanted him to see that he was going to be healed because of the kind of God we serve. And so the first thing he learned, it's not reserved for him. The second thing, look at verse 11. It, we're gonna, Naaman learned that God's favor is not dependent on religious ritual. In, in verse 11 it says, behold. And so this is after the servant came out and he was angry. It says, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And so Elisha purposely doesn't go out because he's like, I'm not even going out to you because it's not reserved for the important people, but I'm not going to do anything extravagant because there is nothing that I can do, no matter how religious it looks, that merits salvation. And so it's not that you have to walk an aisle or say a prayer or it's not some sort of spiritual gift that you have to presume to have or it's not some sort of worship crunch that you get when that, that verse comes back out or it's not some sort of good deeds or it's not some sort of tithing that you get or it's not some sort of special man who's going to preach over you. There is nothing that is religious and right that can save you. It is a gracious God toward you. And so he was disappointed, but he had to learn that. And then the third thing he has to learn is he has to learn. Naaman learned that salvation cannot be achieved. It must be received. And so look at this. And we're going to look at this in weird order. We're going to go for verse 11 to 10 to 13. And so start in verse 11. And so he just hears this. I just have to go to that slimy, disgusting river, the Jordan, and wash myself in it. And so this is what... But Naaman was angry. And later on, they, they, they define the word better as furious. He was raging. And so Naaman was angry and went away. And so the question is, why was he angry? And so jump up to verse 10. Because the servant came out, Elisha didn't even come out, and said, go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. And so the question is, why would that make you so angry? And the answer is because any idiot can wash in the river. What he wanted to hear was, go and do some sort of incredible feat and you will earn this healing. What he wanted to hear was, go and return the ring of the fellowship to the mountain of doom and eternal fires as you slay goblins and everything. I just, Lord of the Rings geeked out on you. He wanted to hear some sort of feat. 
that would earn it. If you live this kind of life, or if you have this kind of generosity, or if you do this, then you earn your salvation. And he said, just go and wash. And Naaman understood exactly what he was saying, because he understood that that means that me, a, a man known for bravery, has no better footing than the coward who runs. That means me, a man who's accomplished and studied, has no more footing than the man who flunked out of high school. That means me, a man who's politically collect, connected and worked hard all his life, has, has no more footing than, than, the, than the slacker. That means a priest has no more footing than a prostitute before the cross of Jesus. And it insulted him. And it insults us. It insults us. And so you may be saved, but there is something that rages you in day in and day out where you think things like this, man, if I would have prayed harder or if I would have been more devoted to Bible study, I probably would have done better in that job interview. Or you think if I would have been more diligent in this week, that sermon probably would have gone a little bit better. Or you think, if I were more devoted, my marriage would probably be a little bit better. We think we can bring something that's going to earn God's favor and blessing. And when we find out there is nothing in you that can merit God's favor and blessing, there is something in us that still rages at that belief. Listen to how his servants talk to him. Now in verse 13, I'm going to read out of the NIV because it says it a little, it leans it. And so it says it in a little bit more clear. So the NIV says it like this in verse 13. It says, my father, if the prophets had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be clean? I mean, doesn't that just say it real plain? You, you would have fought any foe to try to earn this. You would have tackled any project. But it seems like the prophet is saying, that is impotent to save you. And he says real simply, just go wash. Why? Why does that insult us? Why does that insult us? Tim Keller, he says it this. He says, more than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God. That our security and value rest in our wisdom, strength, and performance. To the very best at what you do, be at the top of the heap means no one is like you. You are supreme. There is a sense that if I can convince myself that I'm okay, then I'll be okay. And so, in Counterfeit God, when he's talking about this passage, he describes it like this. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, but that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all that I've done, or maybe look at all that I have suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him and just rest. So as we close, I want, I want to read to you two phrases that will certainly be read to your kids out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I want you to hear these. And so we come to God, and we have this in us, and we ask to be saved, and we have to see that first, that self-sufficiency is a lie. It cannot save me. I cannot save me. And then there has to be a shift that we don't earn some sort of blessing from God. We have to shift in the way we cry out to him that my problem is not my suffering, my problem is my sin. And then we have to shift our thinking that we can't earn it, that we have no better footing than anyone else that we can't produce. And so then we say this, that salvation, when we see it and it insults us because it's a free gift, we want to say salvation certainly cannot be free. And you're right. Salvation is not free. You just can't afford it. And so it has been purchased for you. And now you must receive it. And so let's, let's pray. With your heads down, your eyes closed, um, 
last quote that I read, it pointed to two objections that were saying it, it can't just be that the only thing I need is need and I have nothing to offer. And there's two objections that are pointed out and they fit. It's exactly what we're talking about. This first one, the objection that's pointed out is look at all that I've done. If when you fail, you start to look to other things to merit that you're okay, you're saying the same thing. You look before the risen Son of God and you say, look at all that I've done. Surely I'm worthy. You're approaching God like Naaman. Or if you've been hurt, and when I talked about that bitterness or that rage inside of you or that fear, and there is an inability to forgive, then when God comes to you and he demands great things on your life, you hold before him and say, but look how much I've suffered. You owe me. You're approaching God like Naaman. And the good news is he's going to bring a butt in your life to show you that self-sufficiency is a lie and that we need a savior. So that there might be a shift in how you cry. And your loudest cry may not be, take me out of my suffering, but your loudest cry would be, forgive me of my sin, for I'm a sinful man. I am, I, I'm idolatrous. I want my fame more than your fame. I work hard to say much about myself and not you. I want to manipulate stories so that people walk away thinking I'm something special. I, I seek opportunity to praise me above God all the time, and that is just my sin. Save me from my sin. And then he says, you can relax because you've been thinking wrong. You don't have to merit that. I freely give it. So we rest on one of those. But then this is how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes it. How salvation happens in your life. And it says, this is how it happened for Naaman. It says, all Naaman needed was nothing. It was the one thing that Naaman didn't have. God knew that Naaman was even sicker on the inside than he was on the outside. Naaman was proud. He thought he didn't need God. His heart didn't work properly. It couldn't feel anything. You see, Naaman had leprosy of his heart. God was not only going to heal Naaman's skin, he was going to heal Naaman's pride. Jesus, we are a prideful, prideful people. I am a prideful, prideful man. And Lord, it makes my heart numb to your graces. It makes me numb to what you're doing around me and what you're doing possibly even through me. It makes me miss opportunities of joy. I read things like, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and I want to know what that is. And so Lord, would you heal my prideful heart? Would you let me know that it is not a resume, it is not the right relationships, it is not what people say about me. It is not the right connections or it is not possessions that secure my life. It is the grace given through Jesus Christ because the scriptures say all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. God, Lord, help us. We worship you because we know who you are because of Jesus. We know that you're loving because of what Jesus did. We know you love us because Jesus died. We know you're powerful because he rose again. So we pray to Jesus. We worship Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com.